said that um, all of us have, a, have our price, that if push came to shove, we would sell out our convictions for immediate gratification. And a case in point is a story that I heard recently, take it for what it's worth, but I think it illustrates the truth. And that is this, a few months ago there was an opening uh, with the CIA for the position of assassin. Now, as you can imagine, that's a rather difficult position to fill. And uh, it's very difficult to find someone who would fit that profile. And uh, so there's a lot of testing, background checks involved before you can even be considered. Well, after sending some applicants through the uh, background checks and the testing and the training, they narrowed the possible choices down to two men and one woman. The day came for the final test to see which one would fill this extremely secretive and uh, highly uh, questionable position. The CIA man who was administering the test took one of the men to a large metal door. He handed him a gun and said, we must know that you'll follow our instructions no matter what the circumstances. He said, inside this room, you will find your wife sitting in a chair. He says, take this gun and kill her. The man got a shocked look on his face, as you can imagine, and said, there's no way I could ever, ever kill my wife. And they said, I'm sorry, then, you're not the right man for the job. A short while later, the second man came. The same test was given to him. They handed him the gun and said, inside this room, you'll find your wife sitting in a chair. And in order for you to fulfill this position, we've got to know that you'll do whatever is required of you to do without asking any questions. So he took the gun and he walked in the room and he shut the door and about five minutes went by, nothing goes on. He comes out with a tear in his eye and his wife by his hand and says, I'm sorry, I guess I'm not the right person for the position. The third and final applicant is the woman. They hand her a gun. (laughs) They offer the challenge and say that in this room you'll find your husband sitting in a chair. In order to know that you are the one for this job, we've got to know that you will do whatever it takes, whatever we ask of you, without asking any questions whatsoever. Here's a gun. You must go in the room, and you must shoot him to death. She opens the door, and she starts firing. (laughs) Immediately starts firing away. Boom, 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 boom. Shuts the door. No more gunshots. And then there's a scuffle. There's noise. uh, Things break. It's like there's commotion going on. There's pandemonium going on. About five minutes later, she comes walking out of the room. She's sweating profusely. She wipes the sweat off her face, and she says, Why didn't you tell me that this gun was loaded with blanks? I had to beat him to death with a chair. <laughs> now, that, that, now, that is a, now, that is a woman that needs to be at that couple's retreat next weekend. Well, it it does tie in. You're wondering, some of you are wondering, and it really, it ties in. The question is this. I didn't say it ties in and ties in real neatly. It ties in. And that is this. Do all of us really have our price? Or are some of us still trustworthy? You know, the reason I ask it is because no message of Scripture is clearer or repeated more often than the unqualified declaration that God can be trusted. That he is the very source and measure of truth, and by definition, even his word is absolutely the same thing. Whatever he says is true, and whatever he promises comes to pass. He will not sell us short. He will not sell us out. And that's important to know. 
because God is trustworthy. And when we turn to Romans chapter 11 and continue in our study through the book of Romans, we come to a passage that clearly, once again, helps us understand that God is indeed trustworthy. You know, it's really interesting because I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a world where people aren't always trustworthy. I'm going to tell you right up front that 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 is the case in my own life. I have not always been trustworthy throughout my life. I have, as you have, disappointed people around me, regardless of what those circumstances are. Any one of us, and every one of us that were a child at one point, realizes that we were not always trustworthy and broke the hearts of those around us. As parents, and we look at our children, we realize that they're not always trustworthy, and they break the hearts of those who care for them as well. And what's fascinating and interesting to me is if you've ever, you know, as a parent, if you've ever heard your children say, hey, don't you trust me? You know, I've always told ours, no. (laughs) Well, and it's not, you know, necessarily a reflection of them. I don't trust them because I know that I wasn't trustworthy. I've been there and I've done it. And so, yeah, I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little cynical because I know what gene pool they've been swimming in. And so, you know, the question you've got to ask yourself is, you know, are all of us trustworthy? See, it goes back to what God says, and that's this. You know what? Do you believe that man is inherently good, or do you believe that man is inherently evil, and that man is bent to sin? The evidence is overwhelming. We are not inherently good. As the saying goes, most of us, if not all of us, have our price. And we'll sell out at that moment in time. And we'll sell out the convictions that we say that we have for the expediency of the moment. Who hasn't lied to cover their rear end? You know, who hasn't in some way or another tried to make sure that they came out on top or came out cleanly and it didn't matter who else paid the price? See, God's perspective is very clear and that is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. None of us are trustworthy. None of us have anything good in and of ourselves. And the only goodness that any of us get is when we finally put our heart, when we finally open our hearts and trust in Christ, He is our goodness and that's all that's good about us. See, and I know that it offends a lot of people, but you know what? Let me just ask you, if you're one of those people who think people are inherently good, then show me some evidence of that and I'll show you ten times the evidence to the contrary. Pick up a newspaper, read, you know, watch TV, watch the news, watch people you work with, watch your own behavior, watch people around you, how they behave. And you know what? I think that God has a very clear and strong and convincing argument that people aren't as trustworthy as we want to lead other people to believe that we are. Romans chapter 11 helps us to realize that while we don't see very many examples of trustworthiness in the lives of people around us, we can be very confident that God is trustworthy. What a wonderful truth that is. So when God says something, he means it. When God says he'll do something, he'll do it. When God makes promises, you can bank on those promises. And Romans chapter 11 is an example of the trustworthiness of God. Romans 11 verse 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Well, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham in the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone alone am left. And and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Men who haven't sold out is what he's saying. 
And in the same way, then, there also has come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. At first glance, when you read this, you go, what in the world is that all about? And, uh, and, and I realize as we go through this, there's a lot of history that, that is being used here to explain the trustworthiness of God. As I mentioned, a recurring theme throughout the Bible is God's trustworthiness, that God, unlike many men, doesn't have a price, he'll not sell out. And I want you to consider some of the following evidence. Shortly before his death, Joshua testified to Israel. Listen to his words. He says, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, meaning that he knew God had revealed to him today, that moment in time he was going to die. He says this, And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Joshua 23, 14 and 21, 45. Notice what he says. You know by experience that not one thing that God promised you did he fail to bring to fruition. Everything that he had promised, and you've got to understand the history of the fact that he was, they were led out of Egypt, they were led to a promised land, they were given land, all the miraculous things that God did. He said, I would deliver you from my enemies. The, the conquering that took place in the cities, we all know the story of the battle of Jericho and things of that nature. Those were divine deliverances that God had promised to give them if they were faithful to trust him and walk in obedience with him. Some of those promises were, were conditional, some of them were unconditional. And we need to know the difference between the two. David praised and exalted the Lord as the God of all truth. Psalm 31.5 After Solomon prayed before the altar on behalf of the people, he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he had promised. Not one word has failed of his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. 1 Kings chapter 8. Jesus himself prayed to the Father when he said, Lord, sanctify them, speaking of those who would follow him. Sanctify them in truth, for thy word is truth. God is truth, and everything that he says is absolutely true. We live in a world of absolutes. It's not moral relativism, as, as we're so often told to believe. If it's good for you, then just go ahead and do it. If it's good for you, then why is it breaking so many other people's hearts? You see, because there's a moral absolute that we need to recognize and understand. There are things that are right, there are things that are wrong. And you can't morally make everything relative. You know, if I feel like punching you, because it just kind of moves me that way, you may think, well, you know what, that's not right. The question I have for you is this, well, what makes it wrong? See, there must be something that transcends just our own personal behavior and our own personal ideas of what right and wrong are. You know, we've got laws, obviously, that tell us what are right and wrong, but what are those laws based upon? Feelings? It's a standard. There's moral standards and absolutes throughout the world. There are things you can't do no matter where you go in the world. Why? 
Because there's a standard of right or wrong. Why? Because there is a God who created us. Why? Because God has put in the hearts of men things that are right and things that are wrong so that we would know the difference between the two. Does it mean we always believe them and follow them? Absolutely not. That's why prisons are filled with people who if they weren't there, they would be violating us on a regular basis. That's what laws are for. That's what standards are for. That's what justice is for. And tempered with justice is mercy. And you know what? That's because God has created man in his image and in his likeness. See, we need to recognize and understand that there's, there's, there, there is a trustworthiness that we can find in God and no scripture articulates this better than what we're learning in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 have to do specifically with the promises that God made to the nation of Israel and it's from the promises that he made to Israel that you and I, who are not Jewish by heritage, find comfort in the fact that if that's the way God's treating them, then I can bank on the fact that God will treat us the same way as well. Because God is trustworthy. As a matter of review, Romans chapter 9 had to do with God's past election of Israel as his chosen people. Remember, in, in Romans chapter 9, it was God who had chosen Israel, Israel. And if you look at that, he said that to them belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, and what? And the promises. God made Israel certain promises and God will fulfill those promises because God is trustworthy. You can bank on it. In Romans chapter 10, we recognize that, you know what? The nation of Israel is presently rejecting Christ. They're presently rejecting the righteousness of God that is found in the, the Messiah. They're still looking for a Savior and God said, I've already sent him. And they're blinded to what's going on. And the reason for that is simply it falls because of the promises of God and the plan of God. In Romans chapter 11, which we're just starting to look at, we now see God's future restoration. So we see God's past election of Israel in chapter 9. We see their present rejection of God and his righteousness and his Savior in chapter 10. And we'll see the future restoration of Israel in chapter 11, proving conclusively that God is a God who we can trust and a God that's trustworthy. Now understand something. As you read through the Bible, there are two things you'll notice. One is, is that God makes us promises that he calls conditional promises. Conditional promises mean this. If you do this, then I will do that, God says. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you make right choices based on the choices I lay out for you, then, the, then, the, uh, then there's joy, there's blessing, there's, there's all that comes with that. If you do this, I will do that. Those are conditional promises. No different than you and I when we're dealing with one another. If you're working in a place of employment, say, if you meet these goals, then we will pay you these incentives. Talking to your children, if you do these chores, then you will get your allowance, whatever it is. If you, you know, get this on your test, then I will give you this as a grade. Those are all conditional promises. There are also in Scripture unconditional promises. And I get excited about those because guess what? I can't screw those up. I love those. Those are the best promises to get. Those are the ones that say, I'm going to love you no matter what you do. Doesn't make any difference one way or the other. Those, that's unconditional. Unconditional love is, I love you regardless of the choices that you make because you are my child and I will always love you. Every one of us as parents, I would hope, had that conversation with our children. Our love for you is not conditional. You will always be our son. You will always be our daughters. We will always love you regardless of the decisions that you make. Is there a price or consequences for wrong decisions? Absolutely. And the reason that there's price or consequences is because we love you, as we just stated. However, we will never turn our backs on you because our love for you is unconditional. 
It doesn't mean we're going to accept your behavior if your behavior is long before God. You better wake up, smell the coffee, understand that. But you always be our son. You always be our daughters. We will always love you. See, that is what God wants every one of us to clearly understand and know. Regardless of our personal failures, God will never fail us. Why, as I said, do we dwell on things that God has forgiven and forgotten when he doesn't even give them a second thought? Interesting. The whole idea of unconditional promises to the nation of Israel go back to a relationship that God established with Abraham, who was then Abram, the father of the nation of Israel. If you got your Bibles, turn to look at this very quickly, because this is the, the ba- backdrop of what we're looking at in Romans chapter 11. Genesis chapter 15. It should be a passage that we're all familiar with already, those who have been going through the book of Romans with us, because in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, was the turning point in the life of Abram or Abraham. God had made Abraham certain promises, but Abraham didn't believe God's promises. He doubted that God was trustworthy. He still wasn't sure of his relationship with him. But then finally there came a point in his life as an individual where he believed the promises of God. And thus the parallel exists for all of us. And that is this. There has got to be a point in every one of our lives as individuals where we come to a place where we too believe the promises of God. As individuals, not as a group, not collectively. And God basically says this. And this promise is conditional. The promise of God to all of humanity is this. First, he wants us to recognize and know that we are all, as God calls us, sinners, all fall short of his standard. God is perfect, we are not. Get that straight once and for all. Because God is perfect and we are not, he is also a just God, and he must, he must enact a punishment or retribution or a price has to be paid for a violation. Just as you and I would violate the laws of our country, there has to be a price paid because that's what justice is all about. Now, we could either serve that punishment ourselves, which God says is eternal separation from him in a place that was created for the angels and his demons in a place called hell, Hades, the lake of fire, ultimately, and we would be forever separated from God in a place of weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, a place of torment. That's our choice. Or we can choose to believe God and his promise that this, but I loved you so much that I sent Jesus Christ, my son, to this world, to this earth, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross in your place, that if you believe him, you will not have to pay the price. He's paid it for you. And if you believe him and trust him, then you will be forgiven and you will spend an eternity in a place called heaven in the very presence of God. See, the conditional promise is this. See, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which I just shared with you, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, to everyone who what? Believes. See, to everyone who believes, there are promises of reward, and the reward is forgiveness and eternal life through Christ our Lord. The other side of it is, if you don't believe that, then you'll just pay the price for your sins. And I don't mean to minimize that because that's an eternal choice that every one of us have to make. And it's a place of weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth, a place of outer darkness separated from the very presence of God. And there is no joy at all in a place called hell. But he gives all of us the choice. If we choose wisely, there's blessings. We choose poorly, there's eternal separation from God. See, that's a conditional promise. 
And it was that promise of God to Abraham in verse 6 where he made a promise to Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And the Bible says that Abraham believed. The word believed is amen. What he did was God said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Up until that point in time, Abraham didn't believe him. Finally, Abraham said, amen, I trust you, I believe you. At that moment in time where he surrendered his heart, his will, to the will of God and the plan of God, the Bible says, bang, he w- it was reckoned unto him as righteousness for believing the word of God. When you and I believe the word of God, when he says, if you don't trust in Christ, you are eternally separated, you are going to pay the price for sin. When you and I believe that Jesus Christ died in our place, that he came to the earth, he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead. When we believe that in our heart, not just in our heads, God says, declare to you and me righteousness from that moment forward. We're a child of God to those who believe in his name. Isn't that a wonderful truth? But I'm going back to the history here because in Romans 11 it's brought back forth again and that is this. See, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was declared to him at that moment in time and forever and eternity that he was righteous before God. Nothing he would ever do after that could ever jeopardize his relationship with God. Once you are a child of God, you are always a child of God. God's love for us is unconditional. Now, our performance may fail. We may make wrong choices. He must punish us in some ways for our sin, just as we do with the people that we love in our own life. There's a price to be paid for wrong choices, but we're always a child. God says the same thing about, about us. Here's what he said, though. He said he brought him, said to him, speaking of Abraham, uh, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? What is he saying? How do I know your word is good? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, turtle dove, young pigeon. He brought all these to him and cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. Notice, he says, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram, Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. God's telling them what's going to happen in the future before it takes place. It says, but I will also judge the nation whom they serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the great Euphrates, the, Can- the Canite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Mosquitoites and all the rest of those people. And, and um, bottom line is this, and the important thing to note is this, Abraham had nothing to do with the promise that God made. God said, I will make this promise or covenant to you, and it had nothing to do with his performance or lack of it. God says, I will do it, and it's all on my shoulders. You have nothing to, to worry about. You have nothing to do with it. Now, the reason that that's so important is because when we get back to Romans chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles flipped back there, is that the question that you've got to ask yourself is this. From a human perspective, this is how we think, and this is how I particularly think, and that's this. Isn't it a legitimate question to ask that if the nation of Israel turned their back on God, isn't it just natural that God would turn his back on them? 
I mean, if you stop and think how we interact with one another as people, and this is where we get this great example and all our role models, and that is if, you know, you turn your back on me, then I'll turn my back on you. But see, the problem here is this. You notice what, what we've learned up to date, and that is that Israel, God has continually has his arms outstretched to what he calls a stubborn and obstinate people. That they turned their back on his mercy and his grace and his love and his offer to them of salvation in Christ. And so we would ask ourselves, well, then why didn't God just give up and turn his back on them? You know, it's like, hey, man, I mean, here it is. The offer's on the table. You don't want the offer? Well, then I'm going somewhere else with it. In a lot of ways, that's exactly what he did. But he didn't finish them, and he wasn't done with them. And the important thing as we look through this is that in and of itself, the wickedness of rejecting the mercy of God would be enough to be judged by God. But you know what? God made him a promise, and he's going to keep their promise despite them. Isn't that great? I love that. Because as I think of all the promises that God has made to you and me who have come to faith in Christ, I am just absolutely thrilled that God will keep his word despite us. Isn't that a great truth? That's so awesome. Smile. I mean, I, you know, it's just, I mean, to me, it's just incredible. You must all be doing a lot better than me. Let's take a look at some things. He's going to share with us a couple of truths. Number one, there's a remnant. Now, the, the, the reality of what's going on here, notice what he says. He says, and the reason that he shares this is he wants them to understand that God has not permanently turned his back on his people because God made them a promise. The first thing that we look at is there's a remnant. And what a remnant is, you'll see in, in chapter 11. Look, it says, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? Well, may it never Look what he says. For I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. So as he's going through it, he begins to ask the question. He says, well, God hasn't turned his back on the nation of Israel, has he? Now, understand in the Greek, there is no stronger phrase than the one that God chose to share with us. And that is this. May it never be. May it never be. And that has to do with the idea of the fact that God hasn't rejected his people, as he? Now, the idea of rejection is this. There was a point in time where he received them as his people. We've already learned that in chapter 9. He has, he has adopted them as sons. He received them as his people. Now they're saying, okay, once he's received them, and then they didn't own up to what other people thought they should live like and, and, and behave like, then the question was, well, now is God pushing them away? See, illustration perfect in our culture is this. There's a time where those who get married choose to receive that person to themselves. And then whatever the circumstances are, whatever the problems are, and whatever evolves from that moment in time, somewhere downstream, you know, unfortunately, many people decide that, you know what, now I'm rejecting you. I received you once in the past. Now here I am in the present, and I want to reject you from my life. The question that they were asking is a legitimate one, and that's this. We know that God received Israel at one point in the past, but now in the future, since they're an obstinate and stubborn people, disobedient, not willing to receive the grace that God has offered them in the person of Christ, now will God just shove them away from himself? And the answer is, absolutely not. Don't even think that way. And I told you before, that's the uh, New Living Standard. The Brooklyn translation is, don't even think about it. I mean, what are you doing? Don't even think like that, because God's not like that. You know, don't even think about it. And so as we look at this and begin to understand, we realize that the Bible is, is just filled with the promises of God that he will not turn his back on, the, on his people. In Nehemiah 9, listen to these words. They became disobedient rebelled, speaking of Israel. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind your backs. They killed your prophets, prophets who admonished them that they should might return to you. 
They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you, de you delivered them into the hand of your, their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried out to you in time of their distress, you heard them from heaven. According to your great compassion, you did, you did deliver them from those who oppressed them, and you delivered them from the hands of their enemies. I don't know, when you read through, and sometimes when you get a chance this week, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. My Bible, what I've got written there, is really a fascinating cycle of, of God's relationship to people, and that's this. People choose to rebel against God. God calls it sin. They are then oppressed because of their sin, and they're paying a price because of it. And when the pain gets so great, like the prodigal son, they're slopping with the hogs, they wake up one day and say, God, forgive me. How in the world did I end up in this mess that I'm in? As we cry out to God in heaven, God hears us. He hears our prayers of, for, of, of requesting forgiveness, a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. He forgives us of our sin. He restores us back to fellowship and blessings. And then we go along with him for a while until we decide to test him again. Then we sin again. And here we go again. Sin, oppression, confession, restoration. Sin, oppression, confession, restoration. That's the story of my life. Sin, oppression, confession, restoration. See, and the reason that God hears our prayers is not because there's anything good in us, but because He is grace, He is full of grace and mercy and compassion. See, why would God not forgive us 70 times 7 when He asks us to forgive one another 70 times 7? God never asks us to do anything that he has already not done before us. Sin, oppression, confession, restoration. In this group of people, I will guarantee you that there are percentages that are falling along that cycle at some point. There are those who are living in sin and rebellion against God, and the only reason you're here is because God wants you to hear this today. Not because you want to be here. Because you don't even want to hear what I'm saying. But it's not me, it's God, so deal with him. I'm off the hook. Then there are those who, you know what? You're crying out, God, forgive me, what a mess I'm in now. I hope I don't use up all my markers, you know, like a golf tournament. You know, I better save this one for the big one, you know? It's like, what are you talking about? You know, God doesn't run out of, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't hand out markers, and he doesn't run out of being able to forgive us. There's no limitation. Sin, confession. Maybe you want to go from one to the next. Confession. Agree with God that what you're doing is wrong. You know it is anyway because the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, is convicting you of your sin even as you sit here right now. Agree with Him. Confess it. The Bible says He wants to restore you to fellowship. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Either we're going to restore you or you're going to live in oppression from the choice that you're making. And I guarantee you this, man, there's no fun paying the consequences for sin. God wants to free us up. He wants us as a prodigal son to, you know, let, hey, let's time to be merry again. For Christ died on the cross to forgive us, past, present, and future. And all we need to do to be restored to fellowship is confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful truth? See, the Bible talks that there was a remnant all throughout, uh, all throughout history. The fact that God has never given up on the nation of Israel. And the first argument Paul has is himself. He said, wait a minute, if God's given up on the people of Israel then explain how I came to faith in Christ because I'm an Israelite. Not only am I an Israelite, but I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a favored tribe. His argument to them is very clear. If God has given up on, on his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel, then explain how it is that I came to faith in Christ. Isn't that a wonderful argument? I'm one of you. 
God hasn't given up on us because I'm one of you. He's revealed himself to me that I'm a sinner, that, I, that he's revealed that Jesus Christ is who God says he is, the chosen one of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And if I would believe on him, I would be forgiven and have eternal life. I have done that. I have become a child of God because I believed and trusted in Christ. And if God's given up on Israel, how do you explain the fact that I have come to faith in Christ? And they stood there shaking their head going, man, you know what? That's a pretty solid argument, isn't it? See, and I just threw out the same argument to anybody and everybody, whether it's people that I know, friends or family or whatever. If God has given up on the world, then explain how I've come to faith in Christ. See, God hasn't given up on you and he hasn't given up on me. He hasn't given up on anybody. It's his desire that all come to repentance and all come to to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The fact that you are still alive and you still have a choice means God hasn't given up on you yet. It is appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment, no do-overs, no second chances. But while you're still walking, breathing, eating, thinking, and deciding where you want to spend eternity, God's saying, hey, you know what? I haven't given up on you. Whosoever, open invitation. He's saying, man, isn't that a wonderful truth? Now the picture, the pattern that's developed of Paul was an exciting one. Let me share this with you. For those who aren't familiar with this, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul, was riding a horse to Damascus to persecute those who had put their faith and trust in Christ. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated this new movement called the Way. He was persecuting them. He was in hearty approval when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed for his faith. He was in hearty approval, the Bible said. He was riding to Damascus when there was a flash of light and a voice from heaven that said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, oh, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he knocked him on his rear end. Man, I think, you know what, isn't that a gracious God that will knock us on our rear end or do whatever he has to do to get our attention so we can spend an eternity with him? Woo! Man, that's good stuff. You're sitting there going, man, I can't believe all the problems I'm having in life. And, and you know what you're missing is all the problems you're having in life is because God's trying to use those problems to get your attention that, you know what, life is temporary, life is short, you're on your way out. Where are you going to go? Either rebel against God or you turn to him. Those are two choices in life. Well, the whole purpose of, of the way that God got Paul's attention so that we all understand is this. I don't know about you, but the day that I came to put my faith and trust in Christ, recognized I was a sinner, responded with faith to Christ, I was sitting at a banquet table at the Anaheim Convention Center with a couple hundred other people sitting at a table when the guy who was speaking said, hey, you know what, you got a choice. You can either spend your eternity in heaven or you can spend it in hell. It's your choice. Where do you want to go? Well, gee, you know, that sounds, duh. It's like, where do you want to go? It's like, uh, you know, hey, I'm thinking heaven sounds better than hell. Um, you know, so it's like, well, hey, do you realize you're a sinner? Yes, I do. Do you believe that God sent Christ to die for your sins? I don't understand it, but I want to believe it. And you know what? That was it. Quietness in my heart. Lord, if this is true, I, you know, I believe what you say, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And, and I invite him to come into my life. Whatever you want to do, you do whatever you got to do, because you know I'm a mess and I know it too, so amen. I mean, that's simple as it is, right? Guess what? I didn't see a flash of lightning from heaven. I didn't hear somebody saying... Chuck, why are you doing what you're doing? I didn't hear any of that stuff. Well, why is that so important that all throughout Scripture, three different times, the conversion experience of Paul is outlined very clearly for us? And I'll tell you why. Because there is a day that's coming when Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And the Bible says that the nation as a whole of Israel will see the light and they'll hear the trumpet. And they'll see Jesus and they will look upon him whom they have pierced. 
And they will be broken and they will receive him as their savior and as their Lord, as a national entity. Not speaking of individuals, but as a nation, they will recognize him and receive him for whom he really is. There will be an experience that they will have that will be very similar to the one that Saul of Tarsus had on the road to Damascus. Where there will be lightning and there will be a voice and there will be no mistaken who Jesus is that day. And what a wonderful truth that is. And what his argument to them is saying, hey, wait a minute. God hasn't given up on Israel because I'm an Israelite and I've come to faith in Christ. And he was sharing with them that you too can come to faith with Christ. He went on and he talked about the prophet Elijah. And as you look through and you realize what it says, he said, hey, you know, what? there was a time, remember in our history, there was a time where Elijah, this courageous man who was being terrorized by Jezebel, was fearful of his own life, a man of nothing but courage and never sold out his convictions. He said, oh, God, I'm the only believer left on the face of the earth. You know, have you ever, you know, I, I talk to people all the time. I'm the only Christian in my office. I'm the only Christian on my team. I'm the only Christian at work. Well... You know what? No, you're not. You're not the only one left. Don't think so highly of yourself to impair sound judgment. Elijah said, I'm the only one left. What was God's answer? Direct revelation from God. I like the words in the Old Testament that said that it was a divine revelation, meaning this. A voice came from heaven, in this case, to Elijah and said, Hey, you're not the only one. There are 7,000 others that I have set aside for my purposes. You're not alone in this fight. Now, my question is this. Why didn't Elijah realize there were 7,000 others? I don't know. God doesn't tell us, but i got to ask the question. It's kind of like, you know, if you're sitting at your office or you're at your school or you're on your team or you're wherever you are and you're going, I'm the only Christian, wouldn't it be disappointing to find out that, you know what, that somebody sitting next to you was making the same prayer (laughs) and didn't know about you? See, some things you just got to think about a little bit longer than others, don't you? Think about it, though, right? It's like we're all whining about being alone, but man, you know what? Maybe if we were living a life that was pleasing to the Lord and we weren't selling out and we weren't taking our price and we were living a life of conviction and, and not compromise, man, there wouldn't be any question or doubt about who else was out there fighting the same fight. Isn't that awesome? That's good stuff. Anyway, there's a remnant all throughout human history. Now, you look at that and say, well, what about the rest of them? Well, the rest of them were hardened. If you go through the nation of Israel, you'll find during every, every, every period of time that you can look at, you know what, there was a, there was a remnant that was, was there. When Daniel, uh, Meshach, when Meshach, Abednego, you know, when they were all you know, going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, guess what, there was a remnant that believed in God. You know, as you look all throughout human history, there's, God has always had a remnant of the nation of Israel who put their faith and trust in him. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Man, it's filled with men and women who didn't sell out, that put their faith and trust in the promises of God. There was always a remnant. Even the Apostle Paul, who was an Israelite, says, not only did I come to faith in Christ, but you know what? On Pentecost, 3,000 other Jews came to faith in Christ. After that, another 5,000 came to faith in Christ. There's no question in my mind, when you look at the numbers, there were literally hundreds of thousands of Jews who had put their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. And even to this day, there are Jewish people on a regular basis coming to faith in Christ as Jesus Christ is revealed through the Word of God. Jewish people are being saved all around the world, even as we speak and we preach this message. Why? Because God has always had a remnant. The entire nation has not embraced Christ as their Savior, but you know what? Individuals have always done so. And so 
what God's argument is, before you think I've turned my back on my people, realize I've always had a remnant all throughout history. I'm not done with them. I've set them aside. Why did I set them aside? And what happened to the remainder? Here's what he said. You know what? What then? That which Israel is seeking, it has obtained. But those who were chosen in verse 7, and the rest were hardened. They were hardened, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. As I read this, I go, God, how important it is for all of us to realize that, you know what, we cannot continue as people to reject the grace and the mercy and compassion of God without paying a price. And the price is this. That the, that the longer that God offers us forgiveness, the longer that God makes very clear to us that we need to put our faith and trust in Christ, and the longer that we refuse that gift and continue to reject Him, and the rebellion happens in our heart, and we harden our own heart to the voice of God, then eventually God says that I will just complete the task for you, and I will harden it so that you no longer hear the invitation. Wow. The illustration he gave him in the book of Romans was that of Pharaoh. God had made demonstration after demonstration of the power of God in Pharaoh's life. And Pharaoh had a choice, either to repent from the direction that he was going and receive him as Lord and fall on his knees before him. And Pharaoh continued to harden his own heart before God and the evidence that was laid out. And eventually, you know what God did? He just hardened his heart and it was a done deal. All he did was finish the task that Pharaoh already set out to accomplish. I think of the dangerous position that people are in our world today that hear the truth of God, that God loves people, that people are separated from God by sin, that God wants to resolve that, and the remedy is you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. You need to believe upon him because there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And I think of people that I've shared with in my own lifetime, people that have heard that truth over and over and over and over again, who continue to say, I'm not interested, I'm not interested, I'm not interested, I'm not interested, and pretty soon all they're going to see is this. And they're going to go, What? I don't hear it. God, turn them over to eyes that cannot see, to ears that cannot hear. Turn them over to a stupor where they don't even recognize spiritual things anymore. They don't even see God's hand in the universe. They don't even see the evidence that's laid out. Why? Because they chose to turn their back on God, not because God chose to turn their back on Him. We need to recognize that we're all accountable before God for the choice that we make as to the gracious offer of forgiveness that He has in Christ. If you're here today and this is the first time you've heard this or this is the tenth time that you've heard it and you can still hear it and you can still understand it, then praise God because he hasn't hardened your heart yet. But you cannot continue to refuse. I think in very practical terms. I mean, we deal in a world where, you know what, offers are put on the table all the time. I got a job offer for you. Here's a contract offer for you. Or here's this offer, that offer. And we put it on it. There's a limited time to all those offers. And at some point, those offers come off the table. And we don't determine when the offer comes off the table unless the person says, look, you've got till Friday to accept or reject this offer once and for all because then we're going to go and draft somebody else or we're going to go and sign another free agent or we're going to open this offer up to somebody else. You notice what he's saying? But God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, listen, you, you've got till Friday to decide on whether you want to spend eternity in heaven or hell. You've got till Friday to decide whether or not you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He doesn't say that to us. We don't know what the timing is. Because not only that, we don't even know if we have another minute here this side of eternity as far as our lives are concerned. You could drop dead right here and now. You can get hit by a bus on your way home. You can get in a car accident. You can have a heart attack. I mean, I don't know. Only God knows because it's appointed by God for man to die once. And then comes judgment. All I would say is this. 
choose wisely. We can trust God. If he says you can trust me, you can trust him. And he's demonstrated in his, in his relationship with the nation of Israel. He did not set them aside for all of eternity. He set them aside temporarily. And that's the message that Paul's getting across. But there's a remnant always that we're turning to Christ. And you and I as Gentiles, or you and I if you're here as a Jewish person that's hearing the gospel, you have a choice to receive him or to reject him. You can trust him because he's trustworthy. And in closing, let me just share with you a story that I came across this week that kind of points everything in the direction that we need to go, and that's this. There was a young new preacher walking with an older, more seasoned preacher in a garden one day, and he was feeling a little bit insecure about what God would have him to do. He was inquiring of the old preacher, where do you think God is leading me? What do you think God's going to do in my life? The older preacher walked up to a rose bush and handed the young man a rosebud and told him to open it without tearing the petals. So the young preacher looked in disbelief at the older preacher, like, what in the world are you trying to do here? And what are you trying to teach me? And what am I going to figure out from a rosebud? But anyway, he says, what does this have to do with what the will of God is for my life? But to do what he was asked to do, he started to try to open up the rose. And unfortunately, as you can realize, as he opened it up, he began to break off and the petals began to fall and he began to damage the petals and they were just falling all over the place. And he looked at the older preacher like, what are you doing? What's going on? What am I learning here? And the older man looked at him and he began to recite this poem. He said, it's only a tiny rosebud, a flower of God's design, but I cannot unfold the petals with these clumsy hands of mine. He says, the secret of unfolding flowers is not, is not known to such as I. God opens this flower so sweetly when in my hands they fade and die. He says, if I cannot unfold a rosebud, this flower of God's design, then how can I think I have wisdom to unfold this very life of mine? So, so I'll trust in him for his leading each moment of every day, and I'll look to him for guidance each step along the way. It says, the pathway that lies before me, only my heavenly Father knows. I'll trust in him to unfold the moments just as he unfolds the rose. Wow, that's awesome. How about you? Have you trusted in him to unfold your life? Have you trusted in him? If you haven't, I'm going to challenge you. He is the only one that you'll ever meet in life who is absolutely, completely, 100% trustworthy. Father, we just thank you for your words. We just thank you for the encouragement that we have. We just thank you for the conditional and unconditional promises, the ones that you fulfill regardless of our performance and the others that you fulfill based on how we respond. God, I just pray for all that are here that there can be an assurance or an understanding of the relationship that they have or don't have with you, that they would make that right even here as they sit in the privacy of their own heart that they would realize what you say is true, that all of us are sinners, each one of us has gone astray. Uh, There are none righteous, no, not one, and we all fall short of your glory. And because of that, we'll pay a price for that, and there's a price to be paid for sin. But we know that you tell us that even when we're in rebellion against you, you demonstrate your love for us, and that you sent Christ to die on the cross in our place. For those who would believe that not only died on the cross, but he rose again, indicating that we too have eternal life, that we too can be made alive again from the death that sin causes. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, I just pray for those who are hearing your message and understanding what is being said, that in their mind they understand, but with their hearts and their will they're far from you, that you would soften their hearts to submit to that, that they would recognize how much you love them, that they would trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, and that would be appointed to them the promise that you made to those who believe in them will be called children of God to those who believe in your name. And the unconditional love that you have for all of your children is demonstrated all throughout your word that you are a God who is worthy to be praised and also a God who is 100% trustworthy and reliable. 
And we just thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.